0: issue for all women hello jen here to tell you about this week's sunday chops and the first of this year's international men's day series yes it's that time of the year where we let some dudes talk for a change sort of hannah's going to be chatting to comedian matt ford about scandal comedy and the labor party possibly all at the same time so keep your eyes and indeed ears peeled for other great interviews coming up as well this week, I'm chatting to comedian and author Dave Chawner about his experience of having anorexia, as well as Dr. Stephen Anderson, an eating disorder psychiatrist and member of the Board of Trustees at BEAT, the UK's eating disorder charity. I should say up front that some of the chat is a bit on the heavy side, and if you're worried about your own or someone else's health, help is absolutely available, and you can contact BEAT 365 days a year on 0808 801 or beateatingdisorders.org.uk. Dave and Stephen were both absolutely excellent to chat to and I hope that you find this podcast interesting and informative and at times pretty funny and hopeful too. I'm joined by Dave chawner stand-up comedian and author, who's here to talk to me today about his experience of having anorexia. Hi, Dave, how are you doing? Very well, thanks, Jen. How are you? All right, thank you. All right. So anorexia is something that is overwhelmingly associated with particularly young women. There's an estimate that 1.25 million people in the UK have an eating disorder, and that young women and girls between the age of 12 and 20 are most at risk. But the charity beat eating disorders also estimates that up to 25 percent of people living with eating disorders in this country could be male so dave obviously your experience is not unique but men are not necessarily the people that we think of particularly when we're thinking about people who suffer from eating disorders so i wondered if you could first of all just tell me a little bit about your experience if you don't mind
1: yeah absolutely i mean it's lovely to be here as a token man i mean i think that's
0: the first (laughs) time that that's ever happened um
1: so i kind of for me the anorexia kind of developed rather than began and it's kind of like a lot of mental health things that like i never got a break from my brain so actually this because it like Sort of grip me over time i didn 't actually realize what I was doing was abnormal, so it started with things like start exercising a bit more and then I started weighing myself in the morning, but that was um, that kind of like felt like cheating because I 't eating anything so i 'd weigh myself in the evening and then I'd rush home from school to weigh myself again, and then I started exercising more and more and more and started becoming obsessed with calories and the truth of the matter is people around me noticed that these behaviours were a bit I don't want to say abnormal but you know different to other people and I think that's because they had perspective. But I never thought that I was anorexic. And when I went to university, I over the summer I got a job in a boarding school And uh, it was in deepest, darkest uh, Somerset. So there was no shops around and you could only eat three times a day. And it was just pizza, pasta, chips. And by that time, I was amazed how much it got to me. Like I started setting my alarm in the middle of the night to do laps. I started skipping meals. I started coffee loading and I started like, like binging in, in the like dining hall and like, my class would see me and, oh, it's horrible. Because I think a common misconception that people sort of have about anorexia, which is understandable, is you just never eat. And actually that's filled with a lot of uh, guilt. And I did eat. And I never did anything about it because I never felt anorexic enough. And whizz forward to the age of 23, I knew what I was doing. And I always said that it was a slow suicide attempt because obviously anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. So I started writing the notes for after I left. I'd started filming the videos and stuff. And the only reason I engaged in treatment because I refused treatment four times was a nurse. Understandably said to me, look, bottom line, you wouldn't expect your laptop to work if you don't charge it. Why do you expect your brain to work if you're not? feeding it and that made sense to me that oh the depression comes from the anorexia and not the other way around so i had to make a big decision and i engaged in treatment and i was under the care of the morsey hospital for two and a half years had fast track treatment and was diagnosed as severely clinically anorexic so that is a very waffling uh, sort of
0: timeline of it really it's interesting that you said that you sort of slipped into these behaviours initially and you didn't know what you were doing. But then there came a point that you did know what you were doing.
1: One of the things it's really uncomfortable, and I certainly don't want to be triggering or glorifying eating disorders in any way, shape or form. However, I think it's really important to acknowledge that for a tiny slice of moment, for 1% of the time, I loved the eating disorder. I absolutely, I got a swooping, swooning feeling when I could restrict, when I'd look at the scales and it dropped down further, when I'd done exercise, when I'd look at a well-stocked fridge. However, it's the same with uh, alcohol or drugs. There is a short-term benefit for a longer-term detriment if you overuse it. And that's exactly what happened. So that, because I didn't realize that, I thought everyone else was an idiot because I was focused on the things that I loved and overlooked the fact that my attention span had gone that I was getting irritable that I couldn't concentrate I was forgetting conversations that I was constantly cold I was constantly anxious so it was it was one of those things that like eventually even when I realized I almost was hesitant to say it because anorexia felt like this huge thing and I was like do I qualify to be an anorexic? And that's a weird thing to say, and something that people might find helpful. That someone once said to me is, "They said, look, you can just as easily drown in a puddle as you can in a lake. Eating disorders are not about numbers; they're about the impact to you."
0: So that's interesting as well, because obviously you're joining us to talk in the run-up to International Men's Day. and as I said before this is something that we associate more with women and girls than with men and boys. Was, was it harder for you to see yourself as anorexic because so much of the conversation around it is directed at women and girls?
1: You know what, I actually think it's the flip side of that. I found it really hard to be a man and I don't have any problem with my gender now but when I was growing up obviously when I was a teenager a lot of hormones and people started becoming sexually active and I had a lot of friends that were girls I've always had very good friends that were girls and I saw what that did to blokes and they became kind of like pariahs and I felt like the narrative was always like oh if you want sex you're a naughty person and so actually when you stop feeding your body you stop feeding your brain and literally starve those chemicals out so I became very effeminate and camp and kind of womanly and I loved that and I loved starving out that testosterone and starving out that sex drive so I suppose in a weird way I kind of that was something that accidentally subliminally lured me to it and I'm very lucky with a the school that I went to with amazing understandable incredible people but also b the being a man has never been my explanation. No one's ever looked at me and got, oh, he's a proper bloke. Like, I mean, millions of years of evolution, you end up with this, I've always said that's terrible. So I've I've kind of, like, always had a weird relationship with my gender, and I realised for other people that might be a bit more difficult. And it's really important to say as well that eating disorders aren't just anorexia. And if you look at OSFED. Which stands for uh, otherwise specified feeding and eating disorder, which includes things like binge eating. I think it's really interesting that blokes don't associate with that. Like, I remember years ago, I was in Edinburgh, and a friend of mine, who was another stand up comic, had had a terrible gig. And he came home with some, like, fish and chips. And while he was eating, he ordered a curry. And he said, Do you want anything? I was like, No, I'm all right, Tarnay. And then as the curry arrived, he ordered a pizza. And I said, Look, I'm not having a go, like, crack on, do you know, you do you. That's just quite a bit of food. Are you okay? And just very openly went eating my feelings, innit? it. And I said, Okay. So like that's kind of a, a sort of a fraught relationship with food. And they just couldn't understand that that was an eating disorder. And I feel like there's a lot of blokes out there that have different diagnoses that just don't realise that that's an eating disorder.
0: Obviously you were kind of taken in hand in the end and there was a tipping point as it were yeah and, and then you engaged with treatment. Prior to that had you ever wanted to get help did you feel that there was help available to you? I I absolutely didn't
1: know where to get help how to get help and I think actually using the term tipping point is really good because in all of the stories and the narratives and the media, there's always been something really dramatic. There's always been a moment where, you know, there was dry ice and lasers and it was all very Hollywood-esque. And actually the reality of, my eating disorders really dull like genuinely the the most constantly calorie counting constantly preoccupied with food not being able to it was it was just so dull and i was waiting for something that would send me a sign to be like you need to get help now or whatever and it it never came and i actually think speaking to a lot of people that is the reality of eating disorders because we don't live in a hollywood film and if you're waiting for that Disney-esque moment, it ain't ever going to come.
0: So as you say, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. But as we know, there is not sufficient support for it. I listened to your TED Talk, which is online. You mentioned there's someone, there's someone who approached you who said that they could help you overcome anorexia and like offered you a bag of crisps. Do you think there's proper recognition of the fact that anorexia and eating disorders are mental illnesses? Or do you think people are like, you know, you just want to lose a bit of weight?
1: That is an exceptional question. And I think it kind of boils my wee wee whenever we talk about anorexia, that we always talk about body image as well, because, yeah, anorexia is an actual mental illness and um, so, sort of saying that oh, it's about body image is a bit like saying, oh, Damien Rice caused depression. Like, it doesn't really help, but like, it, you know, he didn't. I think there is a lot of misunderstanding. But equally, I feel that it's very easy to come down hard on people. And I feel that, like, people always talk about social media not helping things. I actually think it's not helped in a weird way a nuance gets lost, debate gets lost, and actually intent gets lost online as well and i think there's a lot of keyboard warriors that will tell people off for asking questions that actually are meant in a really lovely way B- best person that i ever spoke to about my anorexia is my old man brilliant very emotionally intelligent beautiful guy love my dad to bits but i'll never forget i got diagnosed with civilly clinically anorexic on the 20th 2nd of December 2012 so obviously just before Christmas and I went back home to spend Christmas with my mom and my dad And I will never forget me and my dad were in a room and he'd obviously got something to say and he said look I don't get it. I've never had anorexia, I've never had an eating disorder, I don't know what it is. And if I say anything wrong, if I do anything wrong, then that's not from a place of malice, that's just from a place of not having lived that. So please, if there's anything wrong, just tell me. And I wish that if the narrative was a little less straight to anger, straight to offence, straight to frustration, and was actually a little bit more understanding like that, I think it would help a lot more people because you know what the truth of the matter is I didn't understand my eating disorder that's why it really annoys me when people say just talk about mental health because you know what if I could just talk about my mental illness I'd have sorted it out myself so I think that it was something chimeric and difficult to understand and actually just being given that let off the leash to say you know i don't get it gave me the freedom to go you know what i don't get it either but i probably might do some weird things and if i do i'm sorry but we're working together on this rather than against each other i thought that was brilliant
0: i cry everything now i'm a parent but um that actually genuinely makes me feel like god bless your dad like that's so lovely and it's so lovely that you had you know you had that person there to support you so dave you have created a comedy course aimed at people with eating disorders to teach stand-up as a way of kind of building confidence combating loneliness and connecting with other people so can you tell us a little bit about the course and also why do you think comedy is a good forum for exploring these issues
1: I, I would love to tell you about the cause. So I think the the inspiration about it was I started doing a show about anorexia as I started going through therapy. And you know what? My therapist was brilliant. She was like this long in the tooth psychotherapist who would she would make me laugh. We would have so many good conversations and actually I I kind of felt that real connection with her because genuinely we talk a lot about isolation with mental illness generally. But honestly, for me, one of the most isolating things was when I was at school, because I've been very privileged and lucky to have incredible people around me. They were really beautiful and they didn't want to say that wrong thing. So they stopped laughing and joking and playing pranks on me they stopped telling me jokes and that actually made me feel more isolated than anything else and that came from a place of love came from a place of not wanting to step over the line but that actually the fact that they started treating me differently kind of made me feel like oh am i different so i think comedy has a huge way of bringing people together And as I started going through therapy and started writing this show, I realized that actually comedy and therapy are not that different. I mean, you're basically using big ideas breaking them down trying to make sense of them and see them in a different way so a lot of psychological techniques such as reframing are actually essentially comedy techniques of thinking about the other person's position so i think it's so fertile with comedy ideas and i i, I absolutely love it so i'm so excited to do it and we have just got funded by the british academy and working alongside Experts from King's College London, University of Nottingham, University of Kent. And it's, yeah, it's really exciting. So the course, the course is six weeks and it's all done online. And it's basically aimed at anyone who has any eating disorder and that's diagnosed or undiagnosed. So the idea is to get in early early intervention to give people the resilience in a real world way it's one of the things i think sometimes is a bit annoying about therapy is you do all of these like positivity lists and things like that and and a sort of feel good box which is brilliant and it works for some people however if i'm in a tense situation i probably don't have time to go and get out my wish journal and do it so we want (laughs) to we want to give people skills they can use in the real world in the moment and um, so it's all done via online. Six weeks It's an hour per week, and it's—I I, I, mean—I've I've had so much fun creating it. And people get people get a little bit nervous about using comedy because they think you're poking fun. And we actually cover like the difference between you know ownership in comedy. So if I was to talk about what it's like giving birth, what do I know? Nothing. Whereas if someone that has given birth. They know that the difference between punching down and punching up. So whether that's satire and actually like satirizing people in power or actually just belittling people. But I I think comedy has helped make sense of so much of my illness because people get uncomfortable talking about mental illness. And actually comedy has had that great way of drawing people together together. And I think also one of the things about the course that I'm really keen about is to change the tone around mental health, because we always talk about mental illness. So no wonder people don't care about it. We actually need to start talking about mental health. You don't have to be unfit in order to go to the gym. Why do you have to wait to get a well before you look after your mental health?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I have referred to mental illness throughout, but <laughs> oh, oh no, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's not having a
1: go. Well, I, I sort of have a little story. This is like really, um, but years ago, I, I know. Sorry, no, that was really but...
0: fragile of me to be like, oh, I've done it wrong. <laughs>
1: well no I, I think i i do it all the time we're fallible people and we get things wrong and it right. I, I mean my the story that i always tell is like years ago i was meant to be um it was about 18 months ago now i was on the sofa on bbc breakfast and the producer called me up and said i'm really excited to talk to you because i've never had any mental health and i was like what and she's like i've never had any mental health or my family have had any mental health and I was like, what are you, a toaster? And it made me realise that just, like, those those sort of conversations happen all the time, and understandably so. Yeah. Because we never really talk about mental health without mental illness.
0: But, no, you're right. People talk about mental health as if, like, they don't... Oh, we all have mental health. It might be good, it might be bad, it might be middling, but we all have mental health. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I have noticed people... Say weird I think things. also this is where it gets a little bit icky and
1: sticky with eating disorders, because, uh, you know, uh, a percentage of the population have an eating disorder. Uh, but also a lot of people have disordered eating. Now, one doesn't necessarily lead into the other, but it does show a kind of thought relationship with food. And that's not a bad thing, because actually, instead of being everything about like preventative measures, actually be about celebrating things of like actually get on top with your relationship with food, enjoying food in a good way. And I think that's really important because again, I feel like the narrative that we're going down with eating disorders is always the the, the sort of sob stories, the shocking stats, the horrendous sort of tone. And actually I think sometimes now more than ever, we need to give people a little bit of hope and a little bit of help to say, you know what, if you are struggling, That is entirely understandable. We've all been through the ringer over the past 18 months. But people like BEAT, uh, which is the UK's eating disorder charity, have got loads of help out there. The Hub of Hope is a really good app that you can look to for any resources. There are services out there, and you can get
0: better. So you've also got a book, haven't you? Weight Expectations. What does that cover, and, and from where can we find it?
1: I will say my book is an excellent doorstop. And if anyone is in the market for a way to open their door, like to keep their door, I basically the book came after I did the show about anorexia and I got uh, approached by a publisher and they said, you want to write this book? And one of the things that I never think I'll be comfortable with is I, I honestly don't do this in order to be like Insta famous or get, twitter book likes or whatever genuinely i think my kind of raison d'etre is always like what did i need when i was 17 and so they asked me to sort of tell my story and i was like look, i'm not spider man i'm not going to do an origin story <laughs> and they sort of said well you know what did you need when you were 17 and when i was 17 i always say i needed two things i needed actual tangible coping mechanisms and i needed uh, people to treat me like a person not a patient which is why i think comedy is so good in normalizing the conversation and because the book is about anorexia i originally wanted to call it the real hunger games but they wouldn't let me so we had to call it weight expectations in the end and it uses this psychological model which is called trans theoretical model basically all that means is change doesn't happen like that if you want to quit smoking if you want to quit drinking firstly you need to realize that you have to change that habit then you have to get ready for it then you have to put things into place so it's six sections which goes through hopefully it might resonate with people of oh i'm in that section and then at the end of every section different coping mechanisms that might help break that cycle so it's all filled with coping mechanisms ideas and stories as well of how the anorexia kind of manifested trying to use a sort of jolly tone
0: okay dave so where can we follow you on the socials uh, presumably if we do that we'll be able to find out more information about your course and, and where to get hold of your book and things like that
1: Brilliant. Yeah, if anyone wants to find out about the course, it's com, and I'm on Twitter, at Dave Chawner and you can get the book, which is Weigh Expectations, at Waterstones and All Good Bookshops. And I like saying that because it implies, if it doesn't sell my book, it's a bad bookshop. And I like that.
0: Dave, thank you so much Thanks. for chatting to us. It's been a joy to chat to you about something Aww. quite bleak. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm joined by Dr Stephen Anderson, an eating disorder psychiatrist and member of the Board of Trustees for the eating disorder charity BEAT. Hi Stephen, thanks for joining me. Hi there. So first of all, can you tell me a little bit about what eating disorders are and how they affect people?
2: Yeah, certainly. So often when we hear the term eating disorder, the first thing that springs to mind is um, a young, thin women possibly with anorexia nervosa so we also always think of anorexia first and um, there are a, a number of other eating disorders that are actually more common than anorexia but uh, anorexia is the one that often springs to mind most so we have anorexia nervosa bulimia nervosa binge eating disorder and a category called other specified feeding and eating disorders which don't quite meet the full diagnostic criteria uh, for one of the other disorders so the the main thing that the, the disorders have in common is a kind of overevaluation of eating shape and weight on the p- the person's self-evaluation so they get kind of self-esteem from eating shape and weight the eating disorders can develop for a number of different reasons there are a number of kind of complex biological genetic personality type factors as well as issues to do with environment the possibility of um, trauma childhood experiences social media media there's lots of different uh, things can affect the development of an eating disorder
0: so there are eating disorders but we now also refer to what people call disordered eating can mm. you tell me what the difference is between those things
2: yeah I, mean, I guess that that can be quite difficult so in an eating disorder there's a kind of the psychological process where the person is striving to lose weight there's a fear of weight gain. Disorder eating can be a bit more difficult so it might not necessarily be to do with losing weight or a, a fear of weight gain yeah, and it is quite difficult to define.
0: So there's a perception that eating disorders are just about losing weight but they're a bit more complex aren't they? They can be a kind of manifestation of, of other things. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. so there, there can be as I said a drive to lose weight or or fear of weight gain. But often the eating disorder or the the eating disorder behaviours can be a means of helping the person feel in control of of life or emotions. So they might learn when they're growing up if there are difficult things going on that restricting their intake numbs emotions or sometimes overeating or binging can help help them feel a bit better. And these things work. They do numb emotions. They help give a sense of control. Sometimes people describe it as, as... the only thing in my life that I can control is what I'm eating. And the pattern gets very stuck. The more the person tries to restrict and the more their brain is starved, the patterns become kind of self-maintaining because of the, the starvation effect on the brain.
0: That's really interesting. I don't think I knew that. I know there's a sort of sense of comfort eating to feel better, which kind of makes sense. But yeah. is there a physiological reaction to starvation which can actually numb emotions? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it does numb emotion. And a lot of this we know about from an experiment that was done towards the end of the Second World War uh, called the Minnesota Experiment. So there was a concern about the safety of refeeding people in Europe particularly um, who had been starved during the Second World War. So in Minnesota, a guy called Ansel Keys got up a number of conscientious objectors who were all men, didn't have any history of eating disorder or other mental disorder. And he studied them for a number of months and then restricted their dietary intake for a number of months before uh, refeeding them gradually. And all of the guys developed symptoms that we would see in anorexia nervosa so that there were changes in the mood, became more obsessional, more socially isolated. You would think about food all the time, talk about food, take long time to eat food, play with the food. So lots of the things that we see and eating disorders are caused by starvation, or the starvation effects on the brain. Your brain uses about a quarter of the, the calories that you take in in a day, so it needs at least 500 calories just to function. Basically, if you starve um, and re- you reduce your intake, your brain tries to save energy. And one of the things it can do is by not making decisions. So you stick to the same kind of patterns. So you hear people saying that they become more obsessional, they stick to the same routine, they can't make decisions at all so they could stand in a shop looking at a, a choice of sandwiches you say, and just stand and look at it for everyone end sometimes because they, they can't make a decision and one important thing is that if a lot of these things are caused by starvation we know that refeeding and re-nutrition should help a lot of them obviously that's what the person fears most is that Eating and, and weight gains.
0: We typically associate eating disorders with women and young girls, but we hear anecdotally that an increasing number of men are presenting with eating disorders. And I wondered A, is that actually an accurate reflection of what's happening? And do more men have eating disorders? Or is it just that more resources are now available or more men feel able to seek help? Or B, if there is an increasing number of men with eating disorders, why is that? Yeah,
2: so I think when I was training in psychiatry, I think we were probably taught that about 10% of people with eating disorders are male. The most recent kind of suggestion from BEAT is that around 25% of people with an eating disorder are male. And as you say, that we're not quite sure if that's an increase in in actual illness in, in men or if it's because they are presenting more, the, the illnesses are being picked up more. So I guess if you're a guy and you have symptoms of an eating disorder and you go and have a look online or try and find out what might be going on with you 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 see lots about eating disorders in women so you think that can't be me and it can be really difficult to ask for help and we know a a number of men when they try and seek help will be told that you can't have an eating disorder you're a guy uh, or your, your weight's not low enough to have an eating disorder so people tell us these things all the time so yeah it's probably that men are Presenting more, trying to get more help. There's also, a, a, in the last number of years, a big increase in the effect of media and social media on men. So things that may have previously been seen more as, especially in advertising, I think might have be been more relevant to women, but definitely more more of an issue for guys now. Another thing is that an increase in numbers of eating disorders in people from LGBTQ populations.
0: And is there a reason for that? Are there any sort of headline factors?
2: I mean I guess somebody recently was telling me that in relation to their own eating disorder they found it really difficult because it's their own stigma was that this is a a female illness so I can't really have it and the the person was gay as well so sees it as a, a female stroke gay illness and there's kind of internalized homophobia I guess and the in the perception that in the, the gay scene you need to have this specific body in order to have anybody be attracted to you or to have any kind of relationship. So it can be really difficult. In, in transport relations, it might be because the, the person believes that they're, they're in their own body anyway so the eating disorder might help prevent like the, the, the development of female characteristics. That kind of thing is that we know that following gender-affirming surgery or treatment, the the body image issues can be improved in transgender individuals.
0: So I wanted to pick up on the point about social media because I think about this quite a lot, and even as a relatively together 39-year-old who doesn't follow anyone from Love Island, but I, I do follow some sporty people and the algorithms throw up all sorts of other people with six-packs, etc. And you don't have to be on Instagram for very long to feel like a bit of a slug. And I remember in the 90s, not to sound like an old man at a football match or anything, you know, like, women, we're women. men, we're men. But people used to look just like normal people, and now men look so preened and put together. Do you think there is an increasing amount of pressure on young men to conform to a certain aesthetic?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think there that, that definitely is... And that's affected by lots of media. And as you, you mentioned, the algorithms in, in social media is quite interesting. Yeah. If, you, if you look at anything to do with fitness or weight, you end up being bombarded with diets and exercise plans and how to achieve the perfect body. And like one day you're, you're allowed to eat a certain food and the next day it's, it's evil and you're not allowed to eat that. It's, it's really difficult. Yeah.
0: And do you think that's exacerbating the problem?
2: It's everywhere, isn't it? All these images are everywhere. And all you're seeing on social media is one snapshot of the person's life. You've got no idea what else is going on with them. But that's all you see. That is that is their life. That's what you think everybody else is living like. So I must be, as you say, that a slob or not looking after myself properly. Yes. Colleagues in Freed. So I don't know if you've heard of Freed. That's the, the first episode, Rapid Early Intervention in Eating Disorders Service. Um, they developed in the module. They've produced a, a kind of short animation video about um, social media and the impact of social media on people with eating disorders. It's really interesting. That can be found online. Just search for that. It talks about the. The effect of, like, everybody takes a 100 pictures and then they try all these different filters and then they post this one thing and everybody's trying to make all their food look absolutely perfect. And, yeah, it's just one single snapshot of the person's life that you're seeing, but you use that just to interpret that's how people live.
0: I watched a documentary last year about the cricketer Freddie Flintoff and his bulimia, and one of the stats presented was that the rate of eating disorders in male athletes is disproportionately high. We talk about eating disorders in young women being related to body image and I wondered if that's why it's so high in male athletes, because their body is sort of, you know, their thing, their living, I guess, and they're so focused on it being the right weight, etcetera, etcetera. Is that why?
2: Yeah, yeah, it could be. And I think Freddie Flintoff talked about people, I can't remember the, the words that they used, but he did, he did have comments about his shape and weight, I think, from from colleagues. And we know in, in sport in general, so cyclists, swimmers, I mean, the kind of the body image, the leanness is so important in the way that, that people are trained. There is a huge focus on weight, And percentage body fat and all of these things and the more you focus on numbers the more you need to focus so it it kind of keeps that going in men there's often more a kind of drive for leanness and muscularity and so people can be using various steroids and other preparations that they believe will kind of bulk or build muscle and there's all these various diets that you you see on instagram for guys in particular yeah to become lean and muscly and that, that can be driven by sport I know there's a number of colleagues in working on eating disorders and sports psychiatry are really interested in looking at this and working with the sports coaches and gyms
0: so is one of the things with eating disorders a sort of like a snowball effect that the more you focus on it the bigger it becomes
2: yeah definitely so the more you check so we hear people check in particular books parts of the body or weighing themselves regularly the more you do that the more you become preoccupied by it because there might be some kind of trigger so I'm worried that my weight's going up a bit so I check my weight and it hasn't so the anxiety comes down a wee bit but then a few minutes later what if I was wrong what if I checked on the wrong scale so people can check on lots of different kinds of scales and uh, just yeah the more you check the more you need to check and sometimes when I'm Talking to medical students or, and talking about body checking and things, sometimes they have, if you're waking up in the morning and you notice you've got a spot on your cheek, so you're aware of it during the day, you're kind of touching it, you look in the mirror a couple of times, by the end of the day in your head, the spot is huge, it's taking over the universe. And it's similar with body image things. The more you check, the more you become preoccupied, and the more you misinterpret what you see seeing.
0: I wanted to ask you about the pandemic because we're living in a strange time in the world and and we've heard that the number of cases of eating disorders has risen. Is that the case and and why has it had such an impact on people? There does
2: seem to have been a dramatic increase in the, the number of people presenting with eating disorders and also the severity. I guess initially at the start of the pandemic I was working in a different job at that point in eating disorders but because we were preparing for everybody being re- redeployed to work in medical wards and all the rest of it, services, mental health services, were really only seeing urgent cases. So a lot of things were, were put on hold. So people weren't getting the same face-to-face treatment that they were before. So people who were already in treatment had an effect on them. People who were kind of predisposed to having any disorders so for, from any of the kind of biological or genetic personality type things that we talked about before, because of the, the increase in stress, the isolation, all the rest of it, eating disorder behaviours as a, um, a means of coping with that. And I guess so, some, some people were more isolated than usual. Some people were stuck at home with family members who they're not usually spending an awful lot of time with. So lots going on, lots of anxiety um, and depressive symptoms as well. The people that I know towards the start of the pandemic with gyms all being closed, people were really panicking about how they would be able to do their normal amount of exercise because compulsive exercising can be a significant part of an eating disorder. Everybody was panic buying at the start. So there were big concerns. If if I only have these small number of safe foods, what happens if I can't get them? And all these empty shelves and everybody in the shop. So it was becoming more and more difficult for people to buy their usual foods and then people not being able to see the GP as quickly as they might normally have been. We found that when people, especially in child and adolescent mental health services, when people were presenting, they were much more unwell.
0: And what sort of signs could we look out for if we were worried about eating disorders perhaps in ourselves or friends or family members? Yeah, So I guess
2: noticing any changes in the, the, the person's eating or what they're saying about eating or shape and weight if they, if they seem to be more preoccupied with what they're having or how they're eating, the amount of exercise they're doing, particularly if they're saying that like they have to exercise in order to be able to eat. And yeah, the help help is available. So I mean, the, if, if there are any concerns, then contacting your GP would be the, the first port of call um, and trying to get referred on to an eating disorder service. Beat which is obviously the UK eating disorder charity, have a number of resources on their website to help kind of talking through eating disorders, what some of the signs and symptoms might be. They have information that you can take along to your GP, because we know sometimes um, medical professionals don't have an awful lot of training in eating disorders. So it has has information. You can take along saying, look, I have this, this, and this. I think I've maybe got an eating disorder, or I think my, family member might have an eating disorder can you can you refer us or point us in the right direction we have a number of other resources online support coaching for family members peer support for people with eating disorders so all of that information can be accessed through the through the website
0: so Stephen if we want to find out more information about eating disorders for ourselves or for family members how can we find out more about Beat?
2: Okay, so the BEAT website is beateatingdisorders.org.uk, which is the, the main site, and you can find links to all the resources on there. They also have um, Twitter, which is at BEATED, which is the main UK one. They also have um, Twitter feeds for Scotland and Wales, so it's BEATED underscore Scotland or underscore Wales and one for Northern Ireland, which is similar. There is a helpline, which is open 365 days a year. The number's on the on the website. And as of last month, we have now have a dedicated telephone line for Scotland as well, as a result of a, a national review of eating disorder services that we did last year. We have got um, some funding from Scottish Government to increase the, the, the kind of resources that we have in
0: Scotland. Well, that is great news. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me.
2: Standard issue for all women.